собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И привидели их на момент прийти, и сердце наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash seansrussiablog, or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and hit the Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. Is there a Russian bourgeoisie? This might seem like a silly question, but reading the news, one would think that Russian society is made up of Putin, a small circle of oligarchs, and then everyone else. The idea of a class of wealthy Russians with its own identity, institutions, and culture seems absent in how we understand present-day Russia. So what is this class of rich Russians? How do they understand themselves and their place in Russian society? and the broader global bourgeoisie. How do they legitimize themselves as a class? For some answers, I turn to Elizabeth Schimpfossel. Elizabeth Schimpfossel is a lecturer in sociology and policy at Ashton University, where she specializes in the sociology of elites, power and social inequality, and comparative media and journalism in post-communist Europe. She's the author of Rich Russians, From Oligarchs to Bourgeoisie, published by Oxford University Press. Here's Elizabeth Schimpfossel. So in your book, uh, Rich Russians from Oligarchs to Bourgeoisie, you state that when you started this project in 2005, that some of your potential dissertation advisors were quite skeptical because they did not believe a Russian upper class existed. So why do you think they were skeptical of you doing this project? In many ways, they had a point. They were looking at the question as political scientists and had probably in their minds all the big chunk on research looking either at the Kremlin and Kremlin politics or at the chunk on re of research looking at oligarchs in more specific terms, as they dominated uh, throughout the 1990s. So 2005 was just about at the beginning to start a new era uh, where um, the high oil, oil price um, brought about a whole new layer of wealthy people and um, which was quite essential for a social class, upper class to form just, just quantitatively. And at the same time, uh, also the, the oligarchs, those few people were um, lost, lost their powers. So this combination of things um, made a class appear, which I think my supervisors from their very political science perspective were not so much interested in. They were also skeptical, of course, in terms of whether I would ever get interviews. And they were also not so wrong in that terms either. So I can't really blame them. I guess this goes, this is one of the things with your, even it's right in your title, right? You're suggesting that there is a, a movement of 
not only how we understand this class, but how this class understands itself, and then a certain kind of a certain cultural and 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 development amongst what you call the Russian bourgeoisie. So. Uh, I think we should start out by defining um, the this progressive development of the Russian ruling classes. So what is an oligarch and, and what do you mean by oligarchs and what do you mean by bourgeoisie? By oligarchs, I mean the, the classical rule of the few um, combination in, in, in a very, very few individuals of a massive accumulation of financial assets and at the same time political power and in terms of the bourgeoisie i mean uh, and, and and to be that's important an oligarchy doesn't doesn't exclude the existence of a bourgeoisie and and, and vice versa the bourgeoisie i mean a the a wider dominant class as Bourdieu would have called it or also in how, how Marx understood um, the, 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 the bourgeoisie, a class of um, capitalists, uh, of owners of the means of production in, in a traditional sense. In my sense, I, I widen it to a dominant class where also includes um, individuals who are reinforcing in ideological terms uh, the ideas of this dominant class. So hence also the inclusion of uh, very influential media managers and politicians. Um, you know, because one of the things is that today in, in the press, we see oligarchs mentioned all the time. And so much so that, um, at least from my perspective, what this term means has is kind of it's become somewhat meaningless as a, as an analytical aspect. So, in terms of like the difference between, and, and you said rightly that just because you have a bourgeoisie doesn't mean you have oligarchs are not mutually exclusive. But where does the relationship of say political power lie in the difference between these two groups? An, olig an uh, oligarchs, I would say, yes, as you say, that as, that, as, that as the term is used today, it's basically um, applied to people of so little wealth at times that wouldn't even have included them into my research. Just a, a, a wealthy person splashing out a lot of money. Um, of course, uh, any oligarch needs to have good chances to have political influence. And I would say for the um, current very wealthy people in Russia, their power is slightly limited. Of course, there are some um, uh, people who uh, both have their political power and, and their great fortunes, but it's not that there is such a distinct group of individuals who could influence as much as they could uh, in the 1990s. Uh, how it relates, I mean, what, well, if you look at the, at the we've got oligarchic tendencies, uh, that's also kind of a, 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 a not so useful application of the term uh, to associate it so strongly to uh, Russian super rich people. I would say um, Trump is no less an oligarch in some ways now as a president as a Zuckerberg with his presidential um, uh, aspirations or even Bill Gates with his attempts to uh, take on um, political 
influence through a back door with all his massive philanthropic projects in, in, in education in the United States. So it's, it's not an exclusive term for Russia either. What I was interested in, so it's, it's a little bit, if you look at the title, it's a little bit also, it's just the title. Uh, so how I understood it as a development first from um, a few male individuals into something like a bigger social class that has its establishes mechanism of inclusion and exclusion and has certain uh, ways of at least trying to reproduce itself. That starts, for example, with just only a, a school system where uh, children attend schools and not in school, not anywhere else in their life, in their social beings, they ever come across a child belonging to the lower half of the Russian population. So it's a certain kind of distinction of a wider social class that has become also very, very keen in influencing public opinion to a certain extent, something we didn't have during the 90s oligarchy. Of course, they had the big channels, uh, TV channels and so on, but less so in terms of influencing, for example, the cultural sphere and thereby also acquiring legitimacy for themselves. This seems to be, I actually, this seems to be really key then that the, the development of, say, today's Russian bourgeoisie, it becomes more institutionalized in the sense you have a certain, um, I mean, you, you talk a lot about philanthropy, but also the setting up of foundations, um, the, these schools, the fact that their children only mingle amongst people of their same class. So this seems to be a, a team, from what you're saying, a, a really important development from this movement from a small group of very rich people to something that's more embedded in Russian society. Yes, and what is quite fascinating here is that um, what we what we will have soon will be the biggest transfer of financial assets the world has ever seen in relation to the small number of people involved in that process, and that's a transfer of assets that takes place between a generation, uh, that older generation among whom there is no single person who would have inherited within their family in the traditional sense, and a, a new generation, uh, basically all of them, inheriting big fortunes. And they've become conscious and enough as a class in itself to set up all kind of enabling institutions, like for example, the management school in Skolkovo, what is the exact title, which has a, um, um, a department on uh, philanthropy and also courses on wealth transfer uh, to the next generation, family office and all kinds of things uh, embedded. Vardanyan is uh, quite uh, important in that, which, which kind of shows quite clearly, clearly that, that, that they know they need to learn, but they also make a collective effort to make this transfer smooth, obviously smooth for them themselves in the first place and make it work uh, for their families, but also beyond their families, for the class as a whole um, for, for, um, for, the, for the years to come.
what I want to say in terms of, of the schools, what you said before, their own schools, it's that they're nevertheless they're quite, and that's also important for the Russians, for the Russian upper class. In contrast to a West, Western bourgeoisie that has, uh, most of them have long uh, bourgeois tradition, the uh, Russian bourgeoisie obviously can't have that. And here, um, many rich parents have long figured out that if they want to give their children the best possible starting conditions, they need to send them to schools which are also attended by intelligentsia children in order right. to benefit from uh, this concentrated knowledge, culture and so on, which is also part of a bigger process of the new bourgeoisie in Russia relying a lot on the uh, intelligentsia in symbolic terms and in real terms uh, to, to um, strengthen their bourgeois, uh, bourgeois elements. Now, um, one of the, the historical issues, um, at least Russian historiography has dealt with this for a long time, is that, you know, does why, when does a Russian bourgeoisie develop and does one actually exist? And one of the, the key interesting things about Russian history over the last 100 years is that essentially it's elite and here, broadly speaking, has been decimated uh, I think three times now, maybe if, let's see, uh, well, you can say the revolution, the terror, uh, the war, and then 1991. Um, so how does this destruction of the elite play into the, its current development and its lack of development in certain ways? I wouldn't necessarily say that, I mean, in, in every, in every, in each of those, turnovers, it was, in terms of a top elite, of course, big um, um, elimination of the old elite and the start of a new one. But at the same time, if we go a few steps lower down, we see much more continuation than often assumed. Uh, there were a lot of great studies done in the 90s, a lot of uh, the new elites were those who were just about to rise closer to the top. So the top elites um, were part of history, but uh, those who came after were not as completely uh, new as in, in, in large, large numbers of them than often assumed. And also among my interviewees, uh, there were very many who reconfirmed the story that Rex to Riches was also in Russia rather a, an exception to the rule. Of course, we've got a lot of street uh, tra uh, st trading stories and people starting uh, bringing over um, some items uh, from China or, or Singapore, wherever to sell them for a multiple price. On, on, on Russia's streets, but that very often are people who did this taking a break or during their studies in, at the elite universities because they saw the chances opening up with it and not because their fate was kind of predetermined determined as, as, as street uh, traders. And of course, that allowed them to build up a certain myth around them of 
having made it from uh, down uh, um, uh, from the bottom to the top, but uh, that's more a, a myth than anything else. That's what's interesting is that one of the things you talk about is is how these these this new bourgeoisie uh, comes up with various narratives about itself to legitimize its wealth. So so how did this class of rich Russians develop in the 1990s? And what are some of the narratives? I mean, you mentioned the rags to riches narrative, but what are some of the other narratives that they they tell to kind of legitimize their enrichment? The most important here is certainly their self-perception as being intelligentsia much rather than rich. And this can t partly even get a little absurd. There was, for example, Denise, who was born into a family. His father became the 300 richest person on the globe within a short period of time in the 1990s. They lived on the Rublyovka, the luxury suburb in Moscow, had all the possible establishment around them all the time. But he told me that it was in London that he can't relate to British social classes and the sharp distinction people make at all. He finds it actually quite appalling. And if he self would try to locate himself anywhere in the social hierarchy, then he's certainly not upper class or upper middle class, but intelligentsia, uh, belonging to those people, as he explains, who have always had uh, a lot of knowledge, culture, and so on, and have absolutely nothing, and that was also very important to him, nothing whatsoever in common with those big bulk of dumb, dull, common Russians. So it was a certain certain self-perception that, given his upbringing, surprised me, but also something not all that kind of direct has popped up in many interviews. This idea of um, stressing, for example, um, a classic, classic, classic uh, example, Alexander Mammut. It takes about uh, five minutes to learn that no matter how famous he is, he would, he would probably quite, uh, the oligarch label fits probably more than to others, even so, so not completely. Um, he would tell one very quickly in the conversation that his father was a law professor, maybe still, when I spoke to him, he was still giving lectures all over the world, and that they had a huge library at home. Um, how sophisticated, uh, um, arranged the library was, poetry at one shelf, um, non-fiction at the other and so on, and um, how they spent their weekends going either to the conservatory or to a museum, then inviting people over, they would play on the piano and sing, and this kind of cultural ways of how they spent uh, their, their, their days and weeks uh, in, in, in Soviet times, and he would wish for his children the same. So this whole, this whole image he creates, it's much more of uh, relating to this certain nostalgia of, of Soviet intelligentsia life than kind of a self-betrayal self, self uh, than, than the life of a 
very wealthy entrepreneur. Is this attachment to the Soviet intellectuals or intelligentsia, I mean, on the one hand, it's nostalgia, but is it also possibly a leftover and a legacy of how, you know, people who were rich are tab were tabooed in Soviet society that the to to identify oneself as say you know like here in the United States like a, a kind of you know entrepreneur or you know other kind of terms one would ascribe being really successful and wealthy and a businessman uh, is it a legacy of a kind of, of a taboo to some extent? It's an interesting question. Maybe it is, but then it's a taboo that has returned because in the nineteen nineties. We have all kind of statements of, for example, Berezovsky uh, saying that we are, we are the kind of new entrepreneurs who showed it the kind of ugly face of, of capitalism and almost uh, an immersing into being a capitalist of the type as Soviet propaganda had it. And and almost almost kind of swimming in this. Of course, they can't be uh, can't be what what we win, under, others must lose. And that's just the logic of capitalism. Uh, bad luck. And then also this huge arrogance to it. Khodorkovsky saying everybody right. is not an oligarch, is an idiot because everybody could have made it. Um, right. um, so so if if there is now a, a move towards this, a kind of return to a taboo, then I would say it is just part of this process of bourgeoisification where the, the, the aspects of how to legitimize yourself in front of yourself in, in your social class and of course also in front of society at large is hugely important. And there what, what, what is also among some quite noticeable, noticeable is this kind of self-perception of almost being moral leaders. So they don't massively strive to influence politics on a large scale. How could they now and um, why should they? But on a smaller level, people who run their big foundations, sometimes if they have production sites very concentrated in some areas, basically replacing social infrastructure um, in, in that area. And also then, 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 for example, after the 14, 2014 crisis, having making sacking a lot of people but then having the foundation to uh, ease the, the the hardship a little for the for the people right. that have just just lost their work and those many of those have quite sophisticated ideas or kind of complex ideas of how um, to instill more civil society ideas among the population and part of it, for example, also to teach the people and, uh, how to do um, charity or philanthropy on a, on a small scale and make that kind of this, this, this mission to make those things part of, of people's lives. And that, of course, um, is, is a certain why, why should they be in the role to, to now be moral leaders? And here again, it's extremely important to have a certain narrative that goes beyond just being entrepreneurs, but um, having this, this moral legitimization through the idea of intelligentsia along the way. You know, this is a really interesting parallel to the, uh, you know, development of the bourgeoisie in the late stars period 
where you have this class that is engaged, of course, in business and, you know, factories and industry, but at the same time is mostly locked out of politics. So they do, they take on the, um, the expression of themselves as a class is very much tied with this kind of, you know, very focused on charities, very focused on social work, and also as being moral leaders of society, kind of positioning themselves as patrons to the arts. Um, patrons to to the population or to the people. It's a really interesting uh, a parallel. I don't know if you ha- you can comment on that. Yeah, some some make this parallel, and some also then so somehow creates an, an a link in the family history to some such aspects. But right. there is a little bit, and they understand themselves that it's a little bit far fetched, a little bit far fetched, and. Um, hence, which is much more solid, is much much closer uh, the, uh, the the references to the intelligentsia, into which most of them, in fact, were born. Um, um, many of them into the into simple technical in, uh, intelligentsia, but nevertheless, so that is an anchoring in the past that is quite reasonable, uh, reasonably for them to make. Yeah. So how do they regard the Soviet past in addition to this nostalgia or connection to the, the Soviet intelligentsia? How do they how do they look back on on, you know, so since most of them were born in the late Soviet period, how do they regard that past? One aspect, almost all of them see positive is Soviet education. And that quite ferociously so, which also makes sense because it's the education they enjoyed and if they said that was rubbish, it was basically the, the foundation of their own knowledge uh, in early ages uh, that um, they would uh, uh, talk down. Some even explain the whole success by references to Soviet education. Many have quite nostalgic childhood memories. When it becomes more specific, it's, um, there was, for example, Zilya Budin Magomedov, who is now waiting for his trial in a Moscow prison. And he said that there were a lot of good things in the Soviet Union we are missing today, except for that there was no private property, but otherwise friendship of the people, a kind of a social, responsibility to help those who are more disadvantaged, a social network that was looking after everybody, then of course again the education and so on. So there is a certain almost almost um, among some almost a praising of, 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 of Soviet times. Others would not massively talk about it. One thing that was Pripachkin, he has worked with Wechselberg, Renovo. He said that, um, of course, there was there were double standards in the in the Soviet Union, but right. de- now he deplores that today we've got triple standards. Uh, so things um, have not necessarily gone gone for the for the better, and and it's kind of more a philosophy, a certain kind of more comprehensive way of thinking uh, which gone lost with the collapse of the Soviet Union. 
So, so where did they sit, sit you given this kind of uh, moral stance and also in, every, in what you were saying about how they regard the, the Soviet Union, it sounds like the, the real loss is a certain ethics, a certain moral positioning. Um, so how did they situate themselves in present day Russia where the politics is, is concentrated amongst a very small class of, of administrators? Uh, they don't have a lot of direct avenues to affect politics. Um, they also are living in a society where corruption is a is a major problem, um, and, and other aspects that you know you would find conducive to say a functioning bourgeois class in you know in in relative terms and or not relative terms in in terms of how we understand it say in Western Europe, uh, how do they situate themselves within this complexities of of Russian political and social life? They were not necessarily commenting on it much, which has partly to do with that hardly anybody else is as good as they are in playing it and negotiating it. There were some who clearly deplored that they can't be politically involved, like for example Pyotr Arvin, but he doesn't blame the Kremlin for that, but he says he wouldn't be accepted by the people because his name is so strongly connected to, uh, because it was minister in 92 to uh, 90s history. At the same time, he also um, dissociates himself completely from any uh, dodgy things um, during the privatizations, having had anything to do with that. Others that were, for example, Moshkovich, um, a relative new billionaire. He won a lot through the sanctions he's in the agricultural business. And he was a senator prior to, uh, he was sitting in the Federation Council prior to the one of the Putin's laws of, of trying to re-nationalize the elites that um, didn't um, allow such political function. And he was very, very clear he wouldn't say anything about it. But it seemed people still had their political channels to influence when need be. What was very so, so noticeable at the same time that they all have some decent links to important people in the presidential administration, or maybe not all, but many of them, very many of them have decent links to the presidential administration. So it's not that they're completely out of the game. Yet at the same time, of course, uh, uh, when I did my last interviews, that was 2007, and one of them was a billionaire. He started talking about that everybody can lose everything from one day to the next, tense. Uh, but almost everybody has set up a second life, second existence somewhere in the West where could, they could move to in no time. He, for example, had everybody, within two days, everything would be running again, children in the school and so on and so forth. And he was quite um, angry with current politics and started bashing it in a way that I was thinking, oh, he is quite brave. And then he stopped himself, noticed, oh, what did I say here? And what will happen with my interviews? And I calmed him down and said, 
um, I will either anonymize him or ask for him approval or take it out. And then I got home and listened to the tape and realized actually what he said was totally unspectacular. He didn't raise any proper criticism. But in the situation when he was articulating his very soft criticism, it seemed already so strong that both of us were sitting there, there and kind of getting slightly nervous. So there's a certain, certain, certain mood of paranoia. And if you look at cases like, for example, Zyavodin Magomedov, who is sitting, uh, waiting for his trial, and when he gets, uh, goes wrong, he will be sitting in a prison for the next 18 years. Or, for example, Boris Mintz, also in my book, who um, had to take all his family and move to London. Uh, there's, a, there's a certain clear reason for insecurity. Yet at the same time, especially Sjövodin, it, it seems like nobody expects it to happen to themselves. So people seem to be quite confidently living their lives uh, at the same time. So certain kind of double uh, perception in parallel. So how does the um, the Russian state or even Putin's people, to narrow it down, uh, how do they regard this class? Do you have a sense of how they're, because on the one hand, as you described, they have channels to affect various things. They have, they can lobby and they do lobby uh, both institutionally and also personally. Um, but at the same time, there is, you know, a sense of I need to build an insurance policy for myself because things can go the other way. Um, so how, do, how does the state look upon these people? So many people in the States are part of this class. Right. Just with very more adventurous links to the power centers. So these contradictions should certainly part of their be part of their life than um, for those a little bit further remote. In pure political terms, what we saw after the 2014 crisis kicked in and Putin invited the 40 richest Russian men to the Kremlin and asked them to be cash cows, so, of course, they are also seen as, as, as wallets and also as especially those who are depending on assets based in Russia, like the Ripaska, um, also kind of hostages. But I think as well as hostages, also, also um, collaborators. And um, it's rather kind of a, a question of where they are, how close or... or remote from uh, the, the power structures at a, at a certain moment in time. Certain negotiating of, 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 their, of, their, of their position with a closeness or remoteness. So, so you mentioned one of the things in, in important places where this, um, this class functions is in philanthropy. Um, how does what do they what kind of philanthropies do they engage in and how does this help legitimize themselves as a as a elite class it works quite well i'm sometimes quite surprised 
but probably one shouldn't be surprised given that if we look at the robber barons of the late 19th century in the United States, how quickly they within one generation got rid of their 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 um, robber baron touch and 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 were accepted. Um, we've got something strangely similar happening in in Russia today, especially with names that otherwise or formerly were quite negatively seen. For example, Putanin, so right in the middle of the loans of uh, shares, loans for shares privatizations in the 1990s. It's a strange thing because if you ask Russians what they think of philanthropy, they would say, oh, it's just, they just want to um, wash their hands clean, get the blood off their hands. But if they are asked about single philanthropists, I believe uh, their opinion could be quite different. It seems to be working, I'm now guessing, I don't have any solid data on it, but what I observed a little bit um, among whoever I could talk to, it seems to be quite um, quite a good way to improve your reputation and image. It certainly works in London, which is quite fascinating, but um, people are often quite angry with all those uh, uncultured Russians buying up uh, the, the property, making terrible renovations to wonderful old houses and so on. But for example, the Lebedevs, uh, owning Evening Standard and running something, promoting their own charity quite a lot through their own newspapers. They, they, they are often like quite, quite cultured, educated, rich people. I said, well, they're an exception. They do really important things. It's quite a curious process. And I would say in Russia, that works pretty much the same. What, of course, is, and that's a global phenomenon, where they give money to most um, are things that don't actually help the poor, um, the most money goes into arts and culture, and then not in community projects, but into their vanity projects, their museums or uh, collections and so on. Even so, here they're quite concerned that things like that should be open to the public, so at least this aspect uh, is alive. Right. Otherwise, it's children, um, a society of mistrust, children one can trust, nobody else but children, yes. It's certainly not those who they consider have um, brought misery about themselves um, in, out of their own fault, for example, prisoners, drug addicts and so on. There's no money going into that sphere. And if we come to children, there's for example, Alexander Svetakov, who, uh, a billionaire who runs a school for uh, heavily disabled children and he's rather an exception, much more fashionable to run a, uh, something for highly gifted children and he said he was discouraged by politi politicians, other people to waste money on those they lost any anyway, um, maybe have 5% of it and take some photos and show them off, but uh, rather um, strengthen Russia's future by investing in, in the strongest and the best. So there's a certain element of, of, of social Darwinism, which is right. quite strong.
So how does that this brings up another question and, and something that you you deal with in your book is one is the gendered aspect of this, right? We're, we're talking overwhelmingly about men uh, who are the the main kind of wealthy, um, and then you have their wives who are playing all sorts of interesting functions. But also, so the gendered aspect, but also the generational one in the sense that, as you just said, there's, there's a um, kind of push to invest in Russia's future. So how do, where do their children fit into this as the next generation of this, you know, first generation of post-Soviet bourgeoisie? It's quite an interesting question because it's so clear that they were born into wealth. So how will they legitimize that? But they're doing quite well by building up their own narratives of doing their own things and um, explaining their own success, not like having having a, a very good explanation of why uh, what they do is merit based and not based on nepotism. Right, and that, funnily enough, can then also be a family myth, just only built up. Like, for example, in our family. We've always had an ethos of working really hard. We can see that my father, all, all he's, he's, he's uh, achieved, he's achieved out of his own strengths. And this, this kind of work essence uh, and, and, and uh, was, was passed on to me. Uh, hence, I'm so successful. Which can, which can work even for people, but it's absolutely obvious that because the father was sitting on a board, uh, the child got into position at an age, by an age that was, is, is, is very unusual. Um, and the, the father's influence in the whole process is pretty ob obvious to the world. But then again, there's a funny thing, it, it works. It, it's kind of in the first glance, it, it looks like a joke, but I think, and that's not only a Russian phen phenomenon, we accept the such status extremely quickly, especially if we have dealings with those people ourselves and might see benefit in those contexts, then we very, very quickly reinforce the narrative of being merit-based in their position. And, and what about where do, where do the women play? Where do the wives and daughters figure into this, uh, this culture or this class? Unfortunately, I couldn't talk to anywhere as to many, many women as I wanted to, because all, most of the networks of, of, of making contacts were towards those who were most engaged in society, and that's men. I have spoken to some women who are businesswomen in their own right, which was partly because in the few cases when male interviewees were willing to pass me on to their wives, it was women who were successful somehow in their own right. And they are often quite tough, basically. On the one hand, uh, acquiring all kinds of male tools, at the same time staying very feminine in their appearance and quite clever in, 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 in playing the field. But by and large, of course, it's, and that's of course also very noticeable for in the new generation, it's the sons who are 
expected to become the most important heirs and not the daughters. What they often do is then take over maybe the, the family's philanthropy, um, something of that sort. Yeah, so it's pretty, it's pretty similar to in other places in the world in this aspect. As, as yeah, Christia Freeland, she writes that anywhere around the globe, and I think she's got a point, the higher you get or the more you get into the plutocracy, the more patriarchal it is. And that actually is something reinforced by many women because it ensures them their position yeah. within this patriarchy. So what role, what place does the West play, both as a place, as you said, that, you know, a lot of these children are going to get their education in the West, um, people are, you know, buying property and, and parking their assets in, in the West. So how does it play as a place, but also as, a, as an imaginary place? for uh, among rich Russians? Suit is impo important. Everybody's always revolved around the West, whether um, in negative terms or positive ones. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's, it's kind of the main um, reference point. As, yeah, as you just said, of course, it's where people have their second lives plant but it's also of course and that's almost universal a place that's seen i would say with a certain defiance also from a perspective of what i call a certain uh, superiority com complex it's kind of actually feeling in general russia's cultural heritage uh, but also individually in many ways superior, but at the same time having huge difficulties to be accepted as such, which of course makes many quite uh, defiant. And of course also the problem to integrate into Western high society, which many have huge uh, difficulties with. And there's this kind of idea towards their children that on the one hand they want their children to be able to become part of any high society wherever on the globe. On the other hand, they want them to return to Russia after their elite education. That's of course another thing, education nevertheless, how, no matter how, how, how high the quality they say uh, they've inherited from Soviet education takes place in the West. Um, even though for, for younger children it's a little bit tricky because nobody wants to lose their child in the mentality. They don't want them to not become Russians. So that's a balancing act which requires quite some thinking and trends and, and fashions change all the time what at the moment a certain moment is considered to be the thing to do. In terms of, 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 of the West in more general term, terms, the upper class, I would say, is very similar to uh, Russia, Russia, kind of broader discourses, a certain embracing in the, in the 90s, and then a certain defiance, turning their backs on it a little in the right. 2000s. It's interesting. I mean, the fact that their attitudes kind of go with the general political trends. Um, well, they're also making sense, it. Right? If you look at, for example, um, Dmitry Kisilyov, one of the media personalities I included, he was almost 
driving the process, being super cosmopolitan in the 90s and then uh, reinforcing or basically almost setting the discourse, turning things around in the 2000s. Is, is, this, is this like frustration with the West in part because of the way rich Russians are perceived in the West as kind of being uncultured and brutish and, you know, some connected to uh, criminality and these kinds of things? For some, probably. I think that depends a lot on how much individual personal interaction they have. Those who are mainly just in Russia and have the anti-Western discourse adopted, they can just repeat what Putin is saying, you know, our, our own civilization, little Eurasian ideas of um, we need to preserve our, our conservative values and we are now in kind of born civilization. Uh, when others who have more dealings with the West, I think then it's very much of how individually they feel they have been uh, accepted. And also how this has developed. So from, and of course it's something one person, for example, he he wouldn't say he, he isn't any anti-Western, and he's always had a lot of things with Westerners and embraced them. But he's gone through the process of feeling very inferior at the beginning, and then at some point realizing that actually, oh, those Western people are just kind of played played it well, and. There, I think, is it's it's partly even a certain annoyance with why on earth did I feel so complex uh, complex in the nineties, reinforcing the process, but not thinking, uh, not necessarily reflecting that overall in the anti-Western perception. But I would say, in total, nevertheless, uh, people are are not anti-Western. I wouldn't say I wouldn't say in in general terms they are. It's more this kind of almost in some ways almost humorous superiority complex they have. I mean, in a, in a way, if you think about it, the, the superiority complex is in a way a result of the, the confidence, you know, speaking generally, the confidence of this class coming into its own, where, you know, I'm, I'm assuming in the 1990s, the West, as for Russia as a whole, kind of played as this imaginary model that they could, you know, aspire to or become or become integrated in. And then as, as, as this class develops its own basis, its own cultural spheres, its own institutions, its own next generation, uh, you know, it, the West becomes less as an important, in, in a way it becomes kind of comical in the sense of like, oh, why did I ever, you know, <laughs> look upon them as something more in terms of my own inferiority, right? Yes, which is also reflected in... in, in um, consumer goods, uh, yeah. high-end consumer goods, like for example, fashion design and so on. This kind of first own, very important fashion de designers coming up in the mid two thousands. What of course helped this process a lot was the money available in the two thousands. And finally, this leads to my last question. You know, Marx famously noted that class consciousness occurs when a class moves from a position of in itself to one of uh, for itself. Do you see uh, the Russian bourgeoisie becoming a class for itself? And, and, and what does that look like? It's a tricky process. I would say yes, partly, but the process is always, uh, has been several times also slowed down by various 
political events. I would say in the 2000s, with this huge amount of money, they were on the best way to do so. But then um, some lashing out from the Kremlin, of course, gives it a certain kind of bash of insecurity, triggers wave of, of people uh, leaving the country or at least contemplating to do so, which weakens it quite badly. Yet at the same time, what is also quite just just in Ryan, in pure statistics terms, there's no other um, Forbes listed group that has survived so well throughout the years. I think what Forbes listed is 96% uh, of billionaires who were on the Russian Forbes list in 2005 and they were still on it in 2010, whereas across the uh, G7 countries that's only 76%. So there's almost 20%, yeah, it's exactly 20% more in Russia who survived. So despite all the kind of insecurities, uh, it's a very, very stable group of people, at least on the very top. And I would say so also further down. So economically, there's certainly the basis for developing and such a thing. And if we see these institutions like this Kolkova um, management school that teaches how to secure one's fortunes in the next generation, that's all elements that are hugely important to um, create a class in itself. What of course also will be interesting, what will happen when Putin leaves? And that's also the reason why I find this wider bourgeoisie very interesting because Again, I would say it will is very likely to be a process where some on the very, very top will have to go or lose their influence together with whatever will happen, Putin's death or what, whatever. Whereas the broad layer of this bourgeoisie will stay on. So they will have a good chance, if it's not a not major um, breakdown of society to further exert their influence and power on the level as they do now. That was Elizabeth Schimpfossel, a lecturer in sociology and policy at Ashton University, where she specializes in the sociology of elites, power and social inequality, and comparative media and journalism in post-communist Europe. She's the author of Rich Russians, From Oligarchs to Bourgeoisie, published by Oxford University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org. Until next time, bye. Everybody knows somebody.
that moves about like a misguided missile. Waking up in the morning when the night is broken by the day. She needs to feed her babies. Waking up in the morning when the night is broken by the day. She's got to go home and feed her babies. She sees no The number she knows that much Smiles or a heart frowns Can't get up for laying down The word is what a good girl won't do Hollywood And the guys say hi 